this is Dr. Bob Evans, and welcome to our podcast, Parental Alienation from Couch to Courtroom and Beyond. We will discuss the resisting and refusing dynamic, commonly referred to as parental alienation, how you'll know it's happening in your case, and what can be done about it. Parental alienation can cause stress and trauma in high-conflict cases. These podcasts focus on how attorneys and mental health professionals can support families and children. This is Dr. Bob Evans, and welcome to our new podcast focusing on the phenomenon of parental alienation, moving from therapist's couch to the courtroom and beyond. Let's begin by talking about some terminology. We have an alienating parent or a favored parent, and this is the parent that the soon-to-be alienated child is very closely aligned and affiliated with. It's alleged in many cases that the alienating parent is the parent who is orchestrating, is the wizard behind the curtain orchestrating the alienation of the child. Then you have the targeted parent or the rejected parent, and this is the victim of parental alienation, one of the victims of parental alienation, because, of course, the child is the ultimate victim. But the targeted parent is the parent who is the target, if you will, the focus of not only the alienating behavior by the favored parent, but ultimately, as it evolves or devolves, if you will, the child then begins to target that parent and rejects that parent. There can be surrogate alienators. That is, frequently you'll have extended family members, uh, new spouses, if you will, uh, step-parents, sometimes grandparents, sometimes other members of the favored parents' family that encourages, sometimes even orchestrates, the alienation process. So those pretty much are the terminologies, if you will, the words that are going to um, um, describe the folks that we're talking about. In a uh, parent alienation case, ultimately you have a child or children rejecting a parent the definition of parental alienation or the short definition is that you have the child rejecting a parent without any justification. There's no reason for the child to reject that parent. That parent hasn't behaved in such a manner as to warrant the rejection by the child or the children. So many times we'll see cases where children reject a parent for very trivial reasons such as I had a parent, a child that said that the parent made them eat broccoli every time they visited, so therefore they never want to see that parent again. And, of course, the worst case of the alienation is when they they not only don't want to see that parent, but they basically wish that parent was dead, never, never alive, and never want to see that person again, all because the primary reason was because they made him eat broccoli. And, of course, there's other examples of of cases where children make other allegations. And we'll talk about this as we go along. You can see the rejection can occur in a relatively short time period, uh, or sometimes it takes a process over a longer time. 
So um, sometimes, for example, when a new uh, significant other is introduced into the family, uh, the children might reject not only the new significant other, but they'll reject the parent who now has a relationship with this new significant other. So that can happen sometimes very quickly. Usually what we find is behind the scenes, the favored parent um, is orchestrating that rejection. Now, of course, there are, I go back to the definition, without justification, the, children's, the children are rejecting the, the parent and the, now let's say, new step-parent. Sometimes it could be the behavior of the step-parent, and that's a possibility. And that's why these cases really require a pretty comprehensive assessment to determine exactly what's going on, what are the people doing. Unfortunately, very frequently, the allegations will in instances of abuse, either physical abuse, sexual abuse, or the child claims to have witnessed domestic violence situations. And that, that becomes a much more complicated case because nobody ever really wants to ignore the, the potential that there's abuse going on. And, we, and courts will always, in the uh, concern for children, basically say, okay, let's put a hold on this and let's put a, a temporary no contact. Let's, let's do an investigation and find out if, in fact, abuse is going on. So that becomes very complicated. And unfortunately, there is some data I saw recently that um, a large percentage of cases, a good, a good percentage of cases, um, we are basically involving false allegations of abuse. And again, that's not to negate the instances where there are genuine uh, instances of abuse, but it can't be um, every single time. We also see uh, frequently the allegations of abuse occur um, in cases where there's now a custodial battle, um, and previously there's no rec no documentation, no acknowledgement, no discussion about having any uh, abusive incidents in a, in a family. It is is not uncommon to see a favorite parent along with the the child going to professionals, judges, attorneys, claiming that the other parent has been abusive, neglectful, angry all the time, has anger problems, displays the anger problems, is a threat, they're afraid of this parent, etc. And so it's very common to see these types of uh, uh, allegations in these uh, family law cases. The question always comes up of how in the world can this possibly happen? You know, a child is born into a family, the family at some point in time love each other, the parents love each other, they love the children, they take care of the children, and, and probably that's the most common scenario. Uh, are there exceptions to that, or are there exceptions where a parent abandons the family, or they've never been present, or that? Of course, those situations do exist. But in the, in the vast majority of cases, you have a, a previously loving parent-child relationship. And within a relatively short time, relative to the relationship of the parents, all of a sudden that relationship between the parent and the child changes. And frequently that is in sync with how the relationship between the parents change. And one parent becomes uh, adversarial to the other parent, and now we see the surfacing within a relatively short time where the child now is, is in an adversarial relationship, if you will, an alienated relationship. More common 
language we're hearing these days is there's a resistance and a refusal to have a contact with that parent. And we'll talk about the vocabulary of um, some of these cases as we go down or uh, as we proceed. One thing that's interesting to think about is what is the typical role of a parent of a child? And typically, obviously, a parent is to love and care for that child, provide for that child. But the parent is also a teacher, if you will, a role model in terms of values and things that we want children to to appreciate and love and treat other adults, for example, in terms of a, a loving, caring way. And so what you see is in an alienation situation, these um, favored parents basically adapt a, a, a pathological application of parenting where no longer is it the idea that the child is going to respect and love other parents, other adults, other authority figures, but they start to twist that modeling and information flow to the child in such a way as to distort the child's relationship with the other parent and, and frequently, we will talk about this as we go along, the other, the other parent's family. So it doesn't just include the other parent or caretaker. It includes grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, etc., an entire side of a family. And in some cases, we actually see them rejecting activities that they frequently enjoyed with the rejected parent. If, if that rejected parent attended their soccer games or maybe even coached their soccer games, you'll find that, that the child no longer has anything to do with soccer. They want to reject that. Or a child always wanted to be a doctor when they grew up because that parent was a physician. They no longer have any interest in becoming a, a doctor or a physician. So again, we repeat the question, how in the world can this happen? How does a child go from having a loving, caring, bonded, um, attached relationship with a parent to a place where they absolutely hate that parent, never want to see that parent again and wish they were dead. Well, part of the answer is how that child is exposed to information is related to their physiological development, if you will, in terms of their central nervous system. We are born with uh, um, an, uh, an ability to develop an analytical mind. That is the, a critical mind, to look at information and see how much does that make sense to us in terms of our experiences in life. Younger children are going to have a less analytical mind, if you will, uh, because they have less experience in this world. And what we're looking at is the conscious mind that re resides in the neocortex of the central nervous system of the brain is not fully developed at this point in a child's life. And Fast forward, it doesn't get fully developed until around the age of 25. And so we see, I don't want to jump ahead, but we see a lot of uh, professionals in the field giving 15, 16, 17-year-olds a lot of credit for, well, they're very mature, they're intellectual, they should be able to make a decision on whether or not they should have a relationship with a parent. Well, that just doesn't make any sense because we know that the the central nervous system doesn't fully develop until the age of 25. And so what we look at is in terms of where are we on a scale between analytical thinking and suggestibility. And the more analytic thinking you are, okay, the less suggestible you are. And the, vi and the opposite is true. The less analytical thinking 
you have, the more suggestible you are. So as children who are lower on the scale of analytical thinking will basically be more suggestible to things like hearing conversations by a favorite parent about how terrible the other parent is, listening uh, to uh, legal papers being read to them or even having them exposed so that they can read the legal papers that describe the other parent. So basically part of our brain analyzes, it compares, it judges, it rethinks, it examines questions, it polarizes, it scrutinizes, it reasons, it rationalizes, and it reflects information. And that is what becomes our memory system. This is what we come to believe. And so in an alienation situation, a child is presented with information that is a distortion, a falsehood about the other parent. Now, this is not to suggest that the other parent is perfect and therefore they are totally innocent in terms of the child, you know, having rejection problems or relationship problems. But does the rejected parent's behavior rise to a level that would justify a child saying, I never want to see them again. I wish they were dead, et cetera, et cetera. And the answer commonly is no. So the more suggestible a child is, the more likely they are to accept, believe, or surrender, if you will. Um, They don't analyze. They don't intellectualize too much about information. And so they become, they believe what they start to hear. They accept the thought and they start to embrace it emotionally. And they ultimately becomes imprinted in their autonomic nervous system. And this becomes the basis for their false memories. It becomes a reality to to these children. One of the biggest difficulties we have in in looking at how do we work with these kind of children is, is that the therapists then buy into, commonly buy into and believe the child and now proceed as if what the child is expressing is a fact and they go take off. They become advocates for the child. They become advocates for the favorite parent and the case gets really complicated fast. So we can turn to some of the uh, really dramatic research that Dr. Stephen Cece out of Cornell University uh, has been spending many, many years on. And the whole idea is about misperception, if you will, false memories, misperception, and, and the reliability of children's testimony, if you will, the ability of children to be a, an accurate recorder of history. So Dr. Cece tells us, number one, that memory is not a passive recording like a tape recorder or a computer. And so you'll have children describing situations as if um, they, they can recall things that have happened to them with such great accuracy. And that's not necessarily the case. doesn't mean that children are lying, because keep in mind that the definition of lying is to deceive someone. Children are actually telling and sharing what they believe to be a past history. And so one of the things... It's very advisable to tell rejected parents not to really get too angry at children, although it's frustrating, because they're not telling a lie. They're not doing this on their own. This is their memory system basically describing or or controlling their behavior. And so it becomes an issue for 
the rejected parent is not to really throw that kid under the bus because they don't really really know what they're doing. Humans don't like to be confused, so what we do is we make sense out of nonsense. And so what happens is we look at a parent whom we previously loved and had an attached relationship with, and somewhere in the back of our brain, we're hearing that this is an abusive, neglectful parent, and that's kind of inconsistent with our experience. And so in order to help resolve that confusion... One of the things I want to do as a, as a potentially alienated child is to take myself out of this conflict, out of this misinformation campaign that's going on, and basically gravitate towards a source that I don't have to feel confused about. And Unfortunately, the path of least resistance for a child is to gravitate towards the favored parent. They will basically um, get exposed to repeated questions or a discussion about the rejected parent, and that leads to basically a memory trace. So one of the biggest problems that we have is these multiple uh, investigations on child abuse that occurs in a case. And we're talking multiple. Some cases are like 15, 20 cases that get reported to child, child abuse authorities, and the child is interviewed repeatedly with questions about their experience with the other parent, Obviously, they're getting the idea that something must be wrong with the other parent and they must be dangerous for all these authority figures to come in and ask me questions about it. And some of the questions get leading. And so the child actually learns some of the things that they're supposed to be saying. In some cases, they're actually told what to say. I was just reading not too long ago a uh, appellate decision out of the state of Washington. And even in the appellate court's documentation, It reported that the child came in and and told the evaluator that uh, their parent had um, sexually abused them. And, of course, the evaluator was saying, well, this is very disturbing. Let's talk about that. I want to know some more. Tell me what else you can tell me about it. And the little girl said, well, Mommy didn't tell me much more about that. And so, obviously, we had a case where the child was being instructed to tell somebody that they had been abused. Children are highly suggestible. They are suggestible toward uh, stereotypes. And so basically the rejected parent becomes a stereotype for substance abuser, for a physical abuser, for a sex abuser, and neglectful person. And so a child actually comes to believe that that's what that parent has been in the past, although they don't can't really fully remember all of it. And that's why you'll frequently see in these investigations that they get discontinued or discounted because what happens is the child has no details, very few details about what went on. And that becomes um, kind of an, a problem. I mentioned this earlier, but the role of a parent is basically to influence the child to be a a functioning, respectful, ethical, honest adult and uh, teaching the child ethical, emotional, intellectual uh, values and and provide that kind of guidance to the child. And because of that parent's attachment to the child, they become a very strong influence to the child in terms of how they should be behaving down the road. Parenting is a, a source from which as humans, we get a, a sense of self. We find out who we are, how, how lovable we are, how uh, intellectual, how smart we are, etc. 
a parent's life experiences can profoundly affect how they influence their child. And so an example would be if a child who, a parent who had very, a negative childhood, who had a lot of adverse childhood experiences, can very frequently manipulate a child in a very negative way. Um, some parents having those experiences will go 100, 180 the other way and say, I'm not going to have my child experience those things. But those experiences have made a profound effect. They've traumatized the parent and that can become a traumatizing experience for the child. And what we find, and we're finding more of it, if a parent or caretaker had was alienated as a child, and that alienation was not um, interrupted in any way, was not treated in any way, there's a, a very good chance that they're going to grow up to be an alienating parent themselves. So you have a parent who's been alienated, raising a child who then gets alienated, and that child grows up to become an alienating parent. And so this is a cycle of abuse, and we'll make a case that this is, in fact, child abuse. This is a cycle of abuse that's very familiar in other areas of abuse. And, and what's important is all child eva custody evaluators, judges, should really take a look at the caretaker's childhood experiences to see if any of that might be uh, influencing their ability to parent a child in a, uh, an appropriate, loving way. What we're talking about here is also attachment theory. And attachment theory describes the dynamics of uh, a long-term relationship between humans. And this has been studied very strongly, probably since, very much more strongly, if you will, since the end of World War II. Infants need to develop a relationship with at least one primary caregiver. And from the moment we are born, we find ourselves getting attached to, obviously, the first person we look at is our mother. And very shortly thereafter, we're handed off to our father. And those are the two figures that we become very, very strongly attached to for the rest of our lives, even when those parents pass on and become deceased. And so that attachment sets up a foundation for our social and emotional development. If there's a positive, loving relationship between the caretaker and the child, and they're provided with their needs, safety needs, their physical needs, then that child has a very good chance of growing up very normally. Uh, and explains basically how much the parent's relationship with the child influences the development. And that's the attachment theory. It's a very powerful concept. Immediately after World War II, we found in the literature, obviously, we saw that there was a lot of homelessness. There were often children. And so a scientist by the name of John Bowlesby, B-O-W-L-B-Y, basically was asked by the United Nations to look into um, the whole process, if you will, or issue of maternal deprivation. These children, obviously the men were all fighting wars. Not Obviously some women were doing the same kinds of things, but primarily men were going off to war and some many weren't coming back. And in England, of course, England got very heavily bombed out by the, the Germans. And so there were a lot of uh, deprivation, if you will, in terms of the children and their attachment relationships. Children were actually whisked off to safety locations within England and so that they could survive the war. 
attachment theory grew out of the work surrounding these kinds of issues. Well, we look at attachment theory and parental alienation, and we see the long-term attachment studies have virtually uniformly remarked on the, the, the terrible effects of divorce on attachment status in children. Divorces have effects on children, period. How adults handle that divorce is critical in terms of how the children survive this uh, shock, if you will. Keep in mind, you're going along in life, and you have two parents, and you're interacting with both parents, and you love both parents, and you're feeling very safe and secure, and now all of a sudden, one of the parents is no longer there. Or there was a period of time when both parents were arguing and fighting, and it became a very unsafe, unenjoyable environment, and then one of the parents leaves. And then there's a period where there's no contact with that parent or the contact has, becomes interrupted. This is going to have an effect on children. If parents can rise to the occasion and say, look, what's the most important thing about this is how these children survive this experience. And then they behave in a way that the children become the focus and the most important part of this family, then the children have a good chance of surviving it. Um, many children who grow up without fathers, especially boys, and this is straight out of the literature, if you will, demonstrate significant difficulties in things like sex role, gender identity, development, uh, school performance, psychosocial adjustment, etc., control of aggression. And this is straight out of a study that was published in the Family Law Quarterly, published by the American Bar Association in 2012. It's a very significant piece. The whole concern about parental alienation, a part of it, and attachment is the idea that children are going to lose a parent, okay? And if, it, if an infant has a significant relationship with a parent and that parent is somehow, manner, shape, or form excluded from that child's life, the infant can become very upset, even depressed, and that depression can last a lifetime. The ongoing mourning of the loss of a parent and the consequent loss of the possibility may be ultimately more important to the young child than the initial loss. In other words, it's not just the initial loss, it's the longer-term effect and the possibility of having that loss continued. The parent becomes a peripheral influence in the child, falls out of the child's life. Again, that research tells us that that can have a really significant effect on the child as they, as they develop. Part of, part of the role of being a of a parent is to teaching a child compassion. And that's a, a chief attachment emotion. When we experience as a child that interaction between our parents, we develop a sense of compassion. And it, compassion plays a very strong role in uh, developing um, our, our ability to create attachment relationships for ourselves down the road. And so this whole concept of self-building, it becomes a, a developmental issue. It's a, it's a unique power of uh, interactions among attached figures to build an individual sense of self and particularly personal values uh, as uh, an attachment figure, whether one is, one is lovable, whether is worthy of being loved, whether is one is smart, whether is in, has anything to contribute. So it's a, significant, it's a significant emotion and characteristic of fig, learning how to be compassionate. When you have a failure of compassion, 
which again I think parental alienation contributes to it. You have hurting. You have no problem hurting the feelings of others, of loved ones. You have you you very can be criticizing of other people. You can attack others' uh, self-esteem. Um, you become controlling and manipulating. You uh, basically can isolate, discourage friends. You become coercive, threatening, intimidating. You can destroy property. It goes pretty far all the way up through threatening and harming animals, if you will. And that's one of the things we look for in, in personality disorders of children. Failures of compassion include things like pushing, shoving, slapping, physical contact with somebody else, kicking, burning, biting. These are really serious issues all the way up through uh, using weapons and ultimately, obviously, death. So compassion is a significant emotion that we learn through our attachment. And once we disrupt that this, this attachment between a child and a parent, we are now endangering their ability to develop and maintain and enhance their ability to be compassionate. One of the things we start to look at, we move on to the whole idea of misperception, the science of misperception. And what we learn is that memory is constructive, reconstructive, and it's dynamic. It's not static like a video recording. And so when we talk to people about our experiences, we have a tendency to keep elaborating on our experiences. So if I talk to you about what I did last summer on my trip to pick a story in northwest Georgia, if you will, I'm going to tell you some things about my experience the first time. The next time I talk to you about that experience, I'm going to say some additional things. I'm going to build on what I told you before. And if I talk to you a third time about it, I'm going to keep building it. When you talk to children who are... Um, working off a script and they come in and they want to tell you that they've been abused, they have no details. Their story's the same all the time. And so many times professionals will come in and they'll say, well, the child is telling the same story. It's very consistent, so therefore it must be reliable and credible. Well, that's not exactly how our memories work. Like I said, we keep building on that information and the more we asked about it different occasions, the more we'll give some details. Um, one of the things that we find also in, in terms of memory and construction of memory is the questions that are asked of the person being interviewed, like let's say in a, a child abuse uh, investigation, words matter. And so Elizabeth Loftus demonstrated how when words are presented to someone, it has an influence on their ability to remember details. In a famous study that she did, it was basically when two cars got struck on a highway and there were witnesses, she asked people how fast the car was going when, they, when the vehicle was hit versus when the vehicle was smashed. And so when the word smashed was used, the vehicles were recalled to have been traveling at a faster speed. Misinformation can distort and contaminate our memory. And so as misinformation about a caregiver, about a parent, is presented to the child, that can distort and contaminate their memory. Now, I've probably more extreme cases that I've had over the years was a child who said he wanted to make sure that I knew that his mother was pushed down a flight of stairs when she was pregnant with him. Now, 
Obviously, that child didn't remember that. That would not be possible. But the child knew about this allegation that the parent had pushed the pregnant mother down a flight of stairs. That distortion can contaminate that child's memory about that parent. And so what we'll find very frequently is false memories can get induced through psychotherapy, through counseling. And so one of the things we know in the literature is very, very strong on the idea that traditional therapy and counseling basically can um, be very negative in these alienation cases. False memories have a long-term consequence as well and um, long-term ramifications so that those memories get more stronger as they're recalled, as they're talked about, as they're documented, and it becomes much more difficult to unravel those memories. One of the things that we see investigators coming up with the idea of that this person, can, this person exhibited a lot of confidence. They gave a lot of details. And there was a lot of emotion that they put into their presentations to the investigators. Confidence, details, emotion does not mean it's true. It just means that maybe that person has been trained to do it. They've rehearsed it. It may mean a number of things, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. I want to, again, come up and reinforce the idea. It doesn't, we're not denying abuse occurs. And abuse is a horrible, terrible thing, and it needs to be identified and needs to be dealt with. We're talking about cases where, unfortunately, children have been misled um, in terms of coming up with these allegations of abuse. Allegations of abuse need to be corroborated. They need to be investigated very thoroughly. So it's not just a question of, well, if a child's saying it, therefore it's not true, or alleg uh, parental alienation is, you know, a pseudoscience and therefore should be thrown out. Well, that's not really the case, okay? So, but listen, this kind of wraps up our first half hour of episode one, if you will. So please come back so we can continue talking about this phenomenon of parental alienation. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more information on this topic, please visit www.drbobevans.com or www.naopas.com. We offer classes for both legal and mental health professionals to help educate them on the signs and strategies of parental alienation and how to move forward for a healthier environment for the children of divorce. Please visit www.naopas.com and sign up for our courses and use coupon code PODCAST for a 50% discount. Mm -hmm.